Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 11. In this episode, I talk with Christine Jacobs about her experience as a reading specialist and speech-language pathologist in U.S.-based whole school literacy change models. Christine shares how she has led successful family literacy initiatives, the many roles she has had in her school setting, and how she recently adapted to new administrative initiatives for literacy instruction. This conversation is part of a series on leading literacy change that I've created for a course I teach online at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcast or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. Thank you for joining us today, Christine Jacobs and Norma Craffey, and I'll have you start by introducing yourself, Christine. Hi, my name is Christine Jacobs. I'm currently working as a reading specialist in the Canton Public Schools at the John F. Kennedy Elementary School, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Norma Craffey. I'm a first-year doc student working here in the SAIL lab with Dr. Hogan, and I am a former reading specialist and a classroom teacher in the pre-K to 2 setting. And Christine, what's your background in terms of how you got into your current role? What led you to that role? So I started actually at the MGH Institute as a um, graduate student in their Communication Sciences and Disorders program. And I became a speech pathologist first, and I was trained at the same time in literacy, particularly um, Orton-Gillingham methodologies, Wilson-based kind of methodologies with a focus on phonics. And I became really interested in that, so I pursued that in my career as a speech pathologist first. Every place I went where I worked, I pursued that and um, started working in middle schools as a speech pathologist, taking on literacy um, whenever I could. And then I actually um, went out of school-based therapy and worked in skilled nursing facilities with adults for a bit, but then got back to the educational setting and uh, worked in Plymouth Public Schools, again, as a speech pathologist and helping with reading cases. Um, and then I actually went to the Institute and worked as a clinical instructor and helped train future speech pathologists and literacy um, educators in the areas of literacy, and I loved doing that. It was a blast. And then I came back to the public schools once my family started growing. And I've been working as a reading specialist for the past nine years in public schools. Oh, that's great. What a journey. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> been wonderful. Now, what is your current role then? In what do you, you know, say that you do every day, if you had to explain yes. it? So my title is reading specialist here at the Kennedy School. Um, and Sometimes I feel like that crosses over to coaching a little bit, but primarily I am pulling students or co-teaching in the classroom with, as a reading support uh, for our struggling readers. And that right now is K to five, but slowly, actually K to four this year, because I'm slowly trying to reduce my caseload in hopes of being more effective. How's that going? 
So it's, um, it's going pretty well actually, because my, I think my administrators see how spread thin I am. There's 530 students and I'm the only reading specialist in the school. Um, and we've evolved a little bit each year changes. I've had reading tutors in the past who I supervise and manage, but often they're not trained as um, certified teachers. So it's, it's not often a great match for the kids because their training is limited. So I spend a lot of time training them. So um, short story is I'm getting there. <laughs> and next year I'm actually have been talking to my principal about really trying to narrow my focus K to two so that we um, just use the resource better my you know my role and i think she's responding to that so i right now the plan is k-2 i guarantee it's probably going to expand to k-3 mm -hmm. but because it's tough to take away something and not put something back in place that's why i was wondering if you take that away will they hire yeah. someone new or is that just going to be yeah they won't hire anyone there's yet. no money for that right now um but i've been getting resourceful with trying to train our paraprofessionals in certain programs. It's not ideal because I have to use packaged materials, things that are often well scripted for them because, you know, I just don't want them to feel stressed out having to make a lot of planning decisions in the moment or, um, you know, knowing how to cue sometimes the kids. So I use a lot of um, packaged programs for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I know when you've talked to the course before, you've mentioned that you also have several other ro roles like teacher and parent resource, data keeper, oh, yes. analyst, literacy cheerleader, <laughs> problem solver, liaison to principal and administrator. Can you tell us more about all of those hats that you wear? Absolutely. So in the role as, of a reading specialist, you do, uh, people expect you to be the expert in the building. So you have to become very familiar with the curriculum that's in place. And that can be tricky because I came here and they were using a curriculum I wasn't familiar with. We were using the Houghton Mifflin Journeys. Um, but now that's changing and we're moving over to more of a re reading and writing workshop model. So now I'm trying to get up to speed with that model because I've never used that either. So they look to me to be the expert, but I have to be upfront and say, that's not my expertise right now you know i'm not um fully fluent in those methodologies so i have to learn them so i'm doing a lot of summer training this summer but i'm looking forward to growing it just never stops you're always growing um the other roles i play of course as a direct provider to students who are struggling um, i do a lot of co-teaching particularly in kindergarten first and second grade that's been really fun and um, I was just holding parent trainings today, um, preparing them for summer work because I get nervous over the summer. So I was training parents to use Read Naturally, which is one of those canned programs that I use. So I had 15 parents come in and I trained them to use it. Yeah, and we're, yeah it's, a, it's a great idea because it's there and it's just sitting online and we're paying for it yeah. and the kids are familiar with it so it's easy for the parents to take over as the teacher and actually many of them are teachers yeah. <laughs> parents they're a fabulous resource i had um, it was a title one reading teacher similar role in a very similar um size building and for summer program we had bought like say a core five and that was something mm -hmm. that i had tried to do but i found um the fidelity to it was difficult. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little right. bit more about, um, you know, how how you mm. think that might go with Read Naturally, um, if you think that that's a better fit mm. than something online, or if you've done anything in the past just to try to prevent that summer slide. I actually, um, 
tried it last year and the response I get is usually 35% return on it, but I feel like that's worth it. Um, but the challenge I give the kids is they have to do 10 stories within Read Naturally okay. in order to get, they get an ice cream gift card in the, at the end of the summer. So that's my dangling <laughs> carrot. And, and, and I know. Uh, no ice cream. <laughs> yeah. They love the, as soon as they hear ice cream, they're I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> yep. And I give them a back to school goodie bag. Oh, oh nice. So cool. And the um, CAP, our parent resource group, helps me buy those. So last year I probably spent uh, $150 on that. It's a great return. So, um, and I'm hoping this year I almost tripled the amount of kids I, because uh, I have workbook challenges going on over the summer mm -hmm. that I use and I do the read naturally. So I have quite a few kids involved. But again, the return I'll probably get, they do some of it, but to meet the challenge, I usually get about 30, 35% of the kids. That's, so. that's excellent. It's something, right? Something. It's much better um, than zero. Better than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> One or two. Um, and then the data keeper role, I was very happy to report that came off of my, um, my list of responsibilities this year because I actually received a stipend to do it in the past and that got removed this year. Although I do gather and keep, create many spreadsheets for data for grades one and two in particular. Um, and analyzing the data was, has been slowing down this year because we stopped running our data teams, which has been another whole problem we can talk about. Yes, and then, so that was one of the things I thought <laughs> you spoke of, uh, you know, very highly of last time. So I look forward to hearing right. about that transition, what you think. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a minute. The lead, literacy cheerleader role I run is I have to run um, reading incentives. I usually do three a year school-wide. Uh, this year we did a one book, one school event. And I have a committee that I run that helps me with that. And um, it was a lot of fun. We read, the, everybody read the same book together. And then we invited the author to come in. So that was great. Um, and then we did a March Madness um, reading challenge where we picked 16 books just like in the basketball tournament there's nice. 16 teams and then they have to pair off against each other the winning book moves up in the in the round and Did then the kids loved it huh? that? oh that's amazing um, our literacy committee found it i think it was a parent who brought it to us and wow. she helped me put it together and it's so fun so we had the um so each week we we're announcing which the kids have to vote on an online forum mm -hmm. and then they um we have a winning book each year. So it's kind of fun. That's the best. That yeah. Fun. yeah, it was really fun. That's a Pinterest find, I'm sure. <laughs> and then the last literacy challenge is actually not necessary. It's loosely connected to literacy. It was a screen free challenge where we took a week and we asked the kids to go screen free. And then we reminded them, if you're not looking at a screen, maybe you can read a book. So that's what we did with that. And the winning team got a kickball game against their teachers. So that was fun. And I'm happy to report the third grade teachers beat those third graders again this year <laughs> in the kickball game. We, we knocked them out. Um, so those are the literacy, like cheerleader, like always trying to promote reading in different ways to get the kids to buy into it. It used to be the least favorite part of my job. I've become better at running those kinds of events um, because I felt like it got in the way, but I've learned to understand that the kids really do need that 
they need those cheerleaders cheering them on. So it's it makes my job tough because it's a lot on my plate. But it I do see the payoff in it. Um, do you think it, um, do you think it um, in terms of the literacy cheerleader? Do you think the payoff is that you create a school culture school culture that values reading and literacy? Absolutely, and I I felt like the one book one school was probably the most effective um, way to do that. But even the March Madness, the the different books, it got different titles in the kids' hands. They were all picture books too. So even the fifth graders were reading them and it, it just got us all unified um, talking about the same books. I mean, kids would see me in the hallway like, oh, I read that one. That's my favorite. I hope this one wins. And we were just able to have that connection as a as a school. I'm embarrassed so. to say that, you know, as a person who studies literacy and sees intrinsically the value as one of the most highly valued skills, uh, I rarely read before I joined a book club. Um, mm -hmm. read for enjoyment. I read a lot of nonfiction, but I hadn't read for enjoyment. And so it's actually, I, I definitely see the power personally of having a community and you have mm -hmm. that almost like that peer pressure in a good way to read something, to, uh, you know, go mm -hmm. and discuss it. And it gets you thinking about uh, issues you might not discuss normally. And mm -hmm. um, I think adding that social context is, is so powerful. So that's, that's fantastic. And maybe yeah. kids will see that yeah. so early on. I really like yeah, it's the critical. Screen the screen, yeah. third one, the screen one. I on the way in today, mm -hmm. I was listening to chapter six in Marion Wolf's new book, or not new, but sort of mm -hmm. her latest mm -hmm. reader come home, and it is about the digital reading versus print reading, and oh yeah, the, the neurodevelopment mm -hmm. in our brain. So it's so applicable, and it'd be really interesting to see even just a week of without screens, the difference in the children. And they really love that challenge. So many of the kids. Um, we, we've done it now for three years and the response rate gets better each year. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely hooking into that with them. Uh, the teacher response rate is not very good. <laughs> <laughs> the teachers are not participating very well. What's that? I said it, it's hard to tune out. Um, it it's is. It's hard not to multitask when you're reading and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is definitely relate to that. But I know I think yeah. there's a big there, you know, there's the movement now of deep thinking and, mm -hmm. you know, this opposite. I think it also ties to the screen free time is that it teaches children that they can, mm -hmm. you know, not be constantly this uh, quick reinforcement yeah. that they can put yeah. down. They can, you know, I mean, I think book reading and I have not read Marianne's book yet, mm -hmm. um, but I do think deep, deep thinking occurs when you read a book. If you spend that mm -hmm. time to just mm -hmm. concentrate on one one thing and that just mm -hmm. is not happening as much as it used to be happening and the boredom piece yeah that, that's what she talked a lot about is that in that boredom is where uh, well uh, in the boredom is where a lot of that creativity and thinking mm -hmm. and not necessarily just what right. she said in her book but it gives you that time and yeah. that space to play and you know have imagination mm -hmm. and that's something that's definitely missing a little bit right now so mm -hmm. that's great that you're fostering that yeah and we did a lot of education around it trying to tell the parents about what suggestions are for how to manage screens in their lives because they're going to be there. Yeah. So it was good. Yeah. And you just don't think maybe, um, maybe you wouldn't think that would be your role when you train to be. A, a Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said it was my least favorite part of my job in the beginning, mm -hmm. but now I, I do see the value in it mm -hmm. and I am definitely a literacy cheerleader here at the building and trying to mm -hmm. promote that awareness. So it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And your next role you said was problem solver. Yes, there are constant problems to be solved. So, I mean, we all are constantly problem solving here in the building, but I will say um, maybe my principal will always come to me in the math specialist often first with a problem and she wants to hear our perspectives. So that's part of the role, I think. Sometimes you get a preview to the issues coming up before she brings it to the whole faculty because um, she wants to make sure she has is thinking more about um, the curriculum and thinking about um, issues. So that's that's a big part of my job too, helping with that stuff. Um, I'm trying to think of some that's, I mean, often right now it's all about managing materials. Mm -hmm. So we don't have anyone here that manages that stuff. So again, that ends up falling on my plate. So my principal's often asking me to go through the workroom, figure out who's getting what books. If we have a new teacher coming in, what can I put aside for them? What materials are they going to need? Making sure I put that together for them. So, and then what is in the same vein of your roles? How does your year play out? What is your year at a glance? What are you doing in the fall versus the spring? And how does that play out? So we're actually making some big transitions here in my school right now. And so I see my role changing a lot. We are moving away from a lot of assessment right now with some, we have new administration in place and they removed quite a bit of our benchmark testing. Oh. So, um, in the past, the first month, I was often evaluating, entering data, getting information organized, um, selecting kids for RTI groups, but we're going to be moving away from that for our particular school. I will still be doing evaluations, particularly on grades one and two, and helping the um, older grades if they need it, but I anticipate being right in the classroom, mm -hmm. starting up and helping with this workshop model now. Um, Pretty much, I'll probably spend the first two weeks setting up libraries, making sure everybody has what they need for materials, and then I'll be right in the classrooms with grades one and two, helping run a reading and writing workshop model. So it's going to be very different. How how do you feel about this change? How do you how will you keep track of how the children are doing over time in the way that you used to do it? So maybe you could help us contrast what you mm -hmm. used to do with data versus how you see it happening now. It's already started to be a problem, I think, moving away from keeping close track of kids this past year. Um, because I didn't have databases set up, we weren't consistently meeting and talking about kids. So we started, I had to work twice as hard to make sure kids weren't falling through the cracks. So it was a little bit frustrating, but I do see the value. I feel like there's just so many things going on. We have to, something had to come off the table. Mm -hmm. So the new administration didn't like the assessments we were using. I know there will still be assessments moving forward. We just haven't set up a plan for that. So um, it's just in the influx year. So I have to just work extra hard to talk with teachers individually often to make sure I know, but I, I spend a lot of time in the grade one and two classrooms, so I'm keeping a close eye on those kids with them. Can you talk a little bit about what assessments you moved away from and whether or not they're considering, I know a lot of schools are moving to the online format of like MAP or STAR or RAPID for universal screenings. Are you moving away from the RTI process or can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
So my school is not a Title I funded school, so we are moving away from those processes. And I do not anticipate seeing something online because I think that my leaders now do not support online reading or online kind of assessments like that. They want more authentic in the moment, running records, things like that. So we are currently using Dibbles in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, and we were using the journeys. We had our own um, kind of reading comprehension tests where they would read passages and respond to questions. But those um, have gone to the wayside. And now teachers are just making up their own things and gathering their own data hmm. for grades one through uh, five. And it's been a challenge for them. Their feedback is that they're not happy about it. So the teams are coming together, like my fourth grade team, I sat with them. I said, why don't we do some kind of uh, monthly reading checks? So they're using, um, we call it a cold read, mm -hmm. but it's, um, they do a monthly, they read a passage that's at grade level and it moves up in text, um, um, text level. And then they ask five questions after. So we're using that just to have some kind of similar assessment to gauge the kids on mm -hmm. and then select kids for supports. But the problem in my building is there's very few supports. I'm, there's one math specialist and one reading specialist and that's it. So if you're not seeing me, then you're basically, or the other paraprofessionals I've trained to use things like read naturally, then you're with the classroom teacher. I guess this, this brings up, um, something that uh, when I talk to parents um, and those who aren't in the field of education, they always are a bit surprised at the, the amount of significant change that can occur with a change mm. of administration. So as a new principal, a superintendent, so as you have new leadership, things can change quite a bit. But I'm mm -hmm. also wondering with those changes, are they, what are they driven by? I mean, I can imagine like one answer <clears throat> I often hear is it's driven by the administrator's background and training, but another yes. um, change, would you say it's probably the biggest driver? Yes. Yeah. Right now. That's my observation. And then yeah. you, is another driver that there were um, parts of your past system that you didn't like or the school didn't like. And so therefore you are changing to improve upon weaknesses that you've noted? Absolutely. I mean, we were not by any means, um, we did not have a perfect system. It was, had many flaws. The assessments we were using were constantly changing. Those benchmark tests we were giving, we constantly had to update them to revise them to meet the standards. It was an incredible amount of work for me and the other reading specialists. And it was frustrating to me because I didn't believe in them per se. I didn't believe they were giving us the right information. Because, for example, we would give a benchmark passage, the same passage to the whole grade four, and I knew there were 10 kids who couldn't even read it. So it was really kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So we were happy to get rid of that practice, even though even when we were doing that practice, I consistently I would go to the special ed director and say, why are we doing this? Just give them a different test. Give them an alternative. Yeah. We'll get different information. We know those kids. Um, but there were tears often around the test. I mean, it was, it was not a, a great practice. So there were a lot of things that had to change. Um, I do feel like with the changes that I am not pulled away from the kids and the teachers as much. So not having to be the data keeper and creating these tests and distributing the tests, collecting the tests, all of those pieces. So I have, 
I have seen actually better response for particularly my grade one students this year and my grade two students. I think they made more progress this year because I wasn't pulled away as often. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I could help the teachers more. So I did see um, stronger gains across my, particularly my first graders. Mm -hmm. I worked real hard with them. I was probably working with 20 first graders this year. Wow. Closely. That's great. Maybe more. Yeah. Grade, you know. mm -hmm. um, so moving to workshop model, um, I'm wondering, given your background and just <laughs> national reading panel, what we know about research, um, as a disclosure, I'm, I'm trained in readers and writers workshop. I, okay. you know, I do see a, a place and a, and a value in um, what they offer. Are you moving? I know they have a new phonics curriculum. Are you right. adopting that as well? Or are you going to maintain more of a <clears throat> systematic explicit or did you have that before? Just what does that look like and mm -hmm. as someone with your background and training both as an SLP and a reading specialist from the IHP, how do you balance what you know about evidence versus mm -hmm. what you have to do because leadership has made those decisions? It's, um, it's a real challenge. I have um, tried to keep open-minded and really grow and take what I like from both, you know, um, scopes of reading instruction. So being so strongly phonics driven and explicit and sequential in my background, it is, um, it's actually been a lot of fun to learn the opposite end of that spectrum. But I do, we're all worried about where that's going to lead us. We, we have um, mediocre to, um, I'd say, average to above average phonics instru instruction happening currently in the classrooms. Um, it varies teacher by teacher. Um, but we're all using the same program currently. We're using the journeys, um, which has issues with it. So um, it's hard. I do see we are going to pilot the phonics version of Calkins and see how that goes with a couple of the kindergarten teachers. They're starting that next year. Mm -hmm. But I have other first grade teachers who are trained in Wilson, and they are going to do foundations next year. So it's actually going to be tied to the teacher's knowledge base right now for the next year. But the year after that, the district plans to pick one and everybody's going to have to learn it and go with it. Mm -hmm. I, one thing we've been so. talking about in class, um, and uh, as you know, you taught the course with me, uh, uh, reading mm -hmm. and writing in the schools. And one thing that I've been speaking of is this idea of the pendulum back and forth, right? And you're talking, you're living mm -hmm. it now. And Absolutely. there's a valid reason for it in the sense that if you go too far to the phonics and you exclude language comprehension aspects, if you go too far to language comprehension and then you exclude phonics. But if you look at the research developmentally um, and, you know, I'm just telling you what you already know, too, from mm -hmm. co-teaching with me, too, is that it, finding that that, um, you know, match where you're covering both of those critical components and then thinking about how they uh, change maybe in weight or time spent on each one is what I've been teaching the students to do. I know that's easier said mm -hmm. than done. And that's mm -hmm. why it's so helpful to get your perspective of what's actually happening in the schools. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, I think that these things, uh, the changes occur for reasons. And, um, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the kids could be kind of moved around in the sea of change, just kind of back oh, and forth. Absolutely. And we're trying to make sure we all collaborate and talk about it. So already I've been having several meetings with my grade one team, which we have teachers shifting grades next year. So that's another stressor happening. But um, they're already getting prepared and thinking. And the first question they're all asking is, what are we doing for phonics? We need to make sure. And I think they're very focused on that. So it's nice to see. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, because I think ultimately you could have the best of both because we need both of those components. I mean, that's the beautiful part, right? It is such, I mean, I will say the one thing that I've always loved about Writers and Readers Workshop is the opportunity to have that rich, authentic mentor text where you can Mm -hmm. have exposure to the language and the vocabulary and background knowledge and, you know, be Mm -hmm. modeling all of those metacognitive strategies that, you know, it's really an opportunity to give that explicit language comprehension lesson and then find time within the workshop or however you model it to give the explicit phonics Mm -hmm. instruction too. Right. Yeah. It's going to be a balancing act. Just like you said, Tiffany, it's good that you're teaching them, um, your students now about managing that and you have to stay on top of it. And that's where the progress monitoring comes in because it's going to guide you to realize, okay, wait, my students, are definitely needing this um, work more. If the writing isn't moving, you know you have to put more time into that. You know, so that's where we have to get really good at. And my grade one team has adopted some, not, I won't call them benchmarks, but they have adopted um, frequent phonics survey checks that I've helped them create and um, sight word checks. So that at least, and then we do our um, DRAs three times a year as well. So that is another tool we're using. Yeah, is that, which is getting antiquated, but I think it is an interesting perspective to have trained as a speech language pathologist and a reading specialist. Mm-hmm. You see both those components, and I just uh, published a paper with a colleague um, calling for early and often language screening within the multiple assessment model, and mm-hmm. I think that's because we we focus so much on you know testing and you know, uh, for the phonics, right? The phonics kind of check right. the early grades, but we're trying to argue uh, that you need to assess language skills too through those early grades. So both of those components need to be assessed right. because in our longitudinal studies, we find that kids can have one or the other problem, as you see, I'm sure, in practice. Mm-hmm. But that's not, I mean, that didn't really have, I always say to people when we did those papers back in the day, it wasn't that we were just automatically going to find these subgroups. It could have been mm-hmm. that every child who had word reading problems always had comprehension problems, but we actually mm-hmm. don't find that. Right. So I think that's the tricky part is that you, if you only assess for phonics, then you're not going to find kids who have language comprehension problems. Mm-hmm. If you only assess for language, you know, in certain, in these, you know, kind of models or think more about the comprehension, you're not going to find the kids that can't decode. Right. Right. And so it is, I mean, that, I think that you're in such a unique position having training in both of those domains. Mm-hmm. To see but that. I still, I have to admit, I feel like I still have so far to go with helping the teachers understand it and monitor because I've been so spread thin for so many years that I'm really excited about next year. But I feel like every year I think, okay, it's going to happen next year. So it's just, mm-hmm. but I do have to work on that, particularly teachers um, and myself too, not getting caught into that. Uh, whirlwind that just happens. We have to step back and take the time to really sit and look at the kids um, developing some oral language assessments so that we can better recognize those kids who will struggle because we're often thinking, all right, well, they didn't read it and understand it, but they do understand when they hear it, but we don't have anything to formalize that for ourselves. So we have to, it'd be nice to have something like a recalling sentences activity that they're doing or listening to passages and just responding and add that to our battery because we'll understand the children so much better. Yeah, absolutely. There's not any, I mean, there's really not much out there. So, I mean, even though we called for this, one of the big parts of that paper was also calling for 
research and test development around these right. measures because not only you know you could give like for instance a self-screen but that's a one-time thing and that doesn't fall right. into the rti approach or even just multiple monitoring it doesn't have yeah. to be within the tier approach but just if you want to test a child pre and post tests or two or three times a year it's not mm. using those measures right. it's not accurate and so we need to uh, i think that's on uh, and test even developers. When you, even when you do, because part of the RTI process in the school that I was at, SLPs did use the self-screener, and kids that had that language, you know, impairment <laughs> profile and had the decoding, they yep. might have come up first, but after a little intervention, they were fine. And then, you know, they mm -hmm. sit around, they wait till the end of first grade to be evaluated, and you look at the self-score, and you're like, oh my God, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's a serious language deficit mm -hmm. here. So even though we do have screeners, right there's mm -hmm. there's not a lot there and that's definitely something that would be so helpful that's why i really am excited about the rapid mm -hmm. um and what yeah. i've seen from the yeah. rapid and working with schools because it does identify mm -hmm. both of those profiles with what seems to be a, a good precision mm -hmm. yeah yeah are you guys developing that tool the rapid uh, no that? rapid's been developed and that's sold by lexia um, but we are developing a language screener um, oh, nice. So that'll, you know, we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's such a long okay. process of development. I, I mean, it's shocking. I mean, yeah. it, it can take a decade or more to develop a really good assessment. And the need is now. So it's really right. frustrating because you're like, it's I need it right now. Well, wait, I know. I mean, it's like the oh, well, I think... generation of kids. I mean, it's, it's a very oh, yeah. frustrating um, situation, but you also want to do it right. And it just takes a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. to do so I, I'm you know it's it's tricky well, I think of Charlie's classes where he trained us to just listen to children in their natural contacts yeah. like mm -hmm. we have to get really good at doing that and trusting your instincts with that yep it's, and also training it, I think what you were saying is training the teachers you know I'm mm -hmm. I'm coming from having that integrated special ed early childhood um, certification before I was a reading specialist and I was lucky to be trained here at the IHP um, where I did have that language component to it but mm -hmm. so many teachers, I mean, the simple view of reading was like an incredible light bulb moment for me to understand the profile of those, you know, language impaired kids that struggled with comprehension. One thing I've thought an awful lot about is even with the DRA or BAS or running records, when we're asking those comprehension questions and, you know, the kids who they read perfectly and then you ask them to recall and it's either scattered or um, mm -hmm. you know, they say nothing or, you, you know, that, that profile. And instead of saying, wow, this might be a kid who's at risk or has a language impairment, oftentimes we explain it away that, you know, they weren't oh. paying attention or mm -hmm. their parents are getting divorced or there's this or there's that. Instead of training our teachers that, no, this is the profile, like big mm -hmm. red flags. If a child right. reads a story, can you know, read it well, the words, they're lifting the words off the page, but then they can't tell you, even if there was a boy or a girl in the book, like, mm -hmm. let's get going on, you know, looking at this kid more. And I think so much of, we, maybe we don't have the tools, but how can we use the tools that we already have in a way that might be effective to find those mm -hmm. kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that I'm hoping that's our next frontier is to get past um, some of these arguments and, and get past the changing of the guard uh, phenomenon that you're going through too, where it's like what right. we're trained on as opposed to 
all getting on a common set mm-hmm. of evidence that's out there. And then and I think the next step, and, and you, you, you just mentioned it, Christine, is that it's implementation science too. So even if you have the best model, it's like, how are, how do you get to the yeah. implementation part? How do you get everyone mm-hmm. on the same page? How do you get fidelity? How do you assess your fidelity? How do you adaptively mm-hmm. change when there's, when change is needed? Mm-hmm. Um, and personalizing the instruction. I mean, I think that's our next frontier. I hope we can get there sooner than later. Um, mm-hmm. But you're, you know, you're living it now of how to uh, how to hold on to what you know is is evidence based and has worked, but also make changes that that uh, occur from above or that are needed. Right. I do find that that data team process was effective, and it's a shame that we lost it this year. I think we're all feeling that. Um, in our students because it was just an opportunity for us to really problem solve together and collaborate and look at the resources we had at each grade level. So we would meet with each grade level and um, directors would be there, principal was there, we would have, I mean we only did this twice a year but still we had that shared data to look at and problem solve for individual children. I mean we were we looked at almost every single kid in the grade and said, what do they need? What do they need? We'd go to the next kid. What do they need for their literacy instruction? Even if they're already meeting our benchmarks, how are we going to push them forward? Do they need a book club? What should the classroom teacher be doing? You know, can, they don't, they're not a reader, so how do we hook them in? Maybe they need um, somebody to just conference with them around books to match them up to text. So um, that was really effective, and I think that was the first time I felt like we were really starting to make some changes. So I hope that comes back. Do you think it'll come back? And if you do, what do you think it'll take to get it back? And what will it look like? I think we just, I I don't know if it'll come back from the right now from the top down. So it's going to have to come from the bottom up. We're going to have to just meet collaboratively. And you see models like that out there online. Um, People, teams meeting together and saying, listen, I'm really good at teaching this topic. Why don't you send your kids to me? I'll do this for, you know, if that's what they need, and really sharing the students. Um, so get getting to that ownership and helping to support all of the kids in the school. So I think if we do that, and I'm hopeful again next year where I have a focus on fewer grade levels, I want to just get it rolling with grades one and two and say, let's all meet together. What can we do? We were there, and then I feel like we took a couple steps back with the change. Yeah. Changes. I think the changes are well intended, um, and it does go back to um, administrators' comfort, familiarity, their training. So, uh, but I do think they have a balanced approach. I think they have um, really good intentions, and I think it's going to get there. I think when you're dealing with masses of people, I mean, we have for at least 16 teachers teaching one grade level in our district you know, first grade teachers, maybe more. Um, When you're dealing with those kinds of numbers, it's hard not to just try to get some consistency going across. But so it's it's a challenge. So I guess my burning question is that you're moving away from data collection and and universal screening. How's that going Mm -hmm. to look? Has there been any talk about the new um, dyslexia screening legislation that's supposed to start in Massachusetts? In the fall, has the district addressed that, or are they just? Nope, that is news to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have not heard or discussed that. Um, I mean, I think we're still 
it's upon the classroom teacher now. It's upon us to do that right now. And, and the state hasn't pushed guidelines out. Yeah. So I know many districts mm -hmm. are waiting for guidelines. So, um, but as they come down, you know, so the law now says that in the fall, kindergarten schools are required to screen children for hearing, vision, and dyslexia in kindergarten. But there's mm -hmm. no guidance on how to do that. Mm. And there's no guidance on what what it means to be compliant with that law. So I think mm -hmm. schools are waiting. But I do think that models that go away from testing will have to reconcile uh, the need to comply with this law as related to data collection, because I think it would be very mm -hmm. difficult to comply with the law without data. Uh, right. So, um, yeah, so that'll be an interesting challenge as you, mm -hmm. as you move forward. What are some... I feel lessons? like... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the kindergarten students, um, we do gather the Dibble scores on them, and those I do feel are reliable indicators mm -hmm. for us. Um, not not particularly the first time they're assessed, but starting by the second or third time they take it, we have a good handle on um, who's struggling. And those, when I look back to the kids still struggling in fifth grade, those are the kids who had the low Dibble scores. Do you use, so. um, just as a, because I know this is always a question, do you use former or the recommended? Are you using the... Oh. I got fancy. I made my own. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you export yeah. the data and make your company? I, I do. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because uh, just, yeah. where did you decide to cut it? And it was was it based on your school or? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we took the district percentiles, and then I cut off at 25th percentile and below, and then I did 40th. Uh, 25th percentile and below is. Um, um, intensive, and then I did um, 40th to the 25th percentile considered strategic. Okay. And then above that, we said we're in our district um, percentiles are significantly higher than the national norms mm -hmm. because we're in a um, we're positioned pretty well. We have a um, you know probably a average to high average median income mm -hmm. in Canton, being mm -hmm. so close to the city. There's a lot of working families, but um, um, so we have a, a good cohort here. So it's, um, at this particular school I'm in too. Yeah. yeah. Not... What did that look like? Like, let's say in kindergarten, if you were cutting at the 25th percentile, like how many kids would you have? Um, I'm trying to remember the numbers by classroom. There were still probably four kids in each classroom below. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't, um, and those were the kids I would start to work with. Right. So I've been, but my interventions have been not as heavy in kindergarten. We have a little more support in the, with the kindergarten classrooms. So the classroom teachers manage a lot of that. But by January, I have a really good handle on which kids I think are going to be probably learning disabled. So start working hard with them. And then, um, when you took those scores, you said you made them based on the district. So you took the scores down and then you did the percentile based on the district mean mm -hmm. standard deviation. I didn't get that fancy. <laughs> you, ranked, um, you ranked them they do somehow. Yeah. I, I just um, conditionally formatted it like okay. for the kids who, you know, yeah. So the, okay. The dibbles will allow you to do yeah, that. You can do okay. that. Okay. Oh, that's district. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And it's going to have the district. That's great. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Because we were we were struggling. Yeah. We felt stuck between the former and the recommended goals. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. 
I wish that's something that more people did because I think so much of the argument over mm -hmm. over identifying or under identifying mm -hmm. can be solved by doing something mm -hmm. just like that. I I didn't do it based on our district, which uh, looking back, I wish I would have you know used the district data because there'd probably be a lot less kids. Um, right. You know, so you could really target those kids. Um, but mm -hmm. I think that that's such a great idea, and I wish that's something that you know, more schools or more reading specialists knew about and did because it really allows mm. you to hone in and, and not just throw dipples out because there are some really good qualities to that assessment. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just hard for people to interpret if they don't understand the information. Yeah. Well, yeah, because yeah. it's tricky because in your district, if you have better scores uh, compared to the national norms, by doing mm. the district level, you're actually going to get children Mm. More children that are allowed, there's not more children, but you're going to use the resources for children right. that need it. Whereas if you use the national norm and you're higher, then maybe you only have one kid that looks like they need help. Mm -hmm. If you're mm -hmm. district level, you could have two. Right. So but if they're competing for a job in Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I like that. I like that, Christine. Yeah. I think the, the downside could be if you're in a district that's much lower. Yeah. Yeah. When you use it, then you're going mm -hmm. to you know make you make it uh, many children that actually need it based on mm -hmm. the national norms look like they don't mm -hmm. right so it, i think in yeah. a district that's performing that's higher really, that actually that's works really, that's why I did right yes yeah. yes we had more kids but yes. and at the same time the kids that you it's such a balance because the mm -hmm. kids that are following lower don't necessarily get the intense services yeah. that they need so. Right. I know, and it's also, it's, I think you're right about, it's a resource game too. Yeah. So if you're in one of those districts and then it shows that, you know, more children need the services than you can provide, right. then you have the choice of lobbying for more resources. Yeah. That's ideal, right. but it's not yeah. always the option in that moment. Yes. So then you have to figure out who needs it and, yeah. and, and so the local could help. But I do think it's, it, it's an, as you said, Christine, it's, it's, you have to have the knowledge and that's a tricky, um, that's a tricky skill to have that a lot mm. of people don't have because we just don't have training. I mean, the, yeah. you know, it's right. not part of the, the training programs, unfortunately. So mm -hmm. that data analysis piece, I think it's, I, I, I see it creeping into stellar education programs and I hope to see it uh, more and more of how do you analyze data and what's this mean mm -hmm. um, to, for your classroom? Mm -hmm. I think that would be very Having, That's where the coaching comes so critical. Um, and I've worked with my teams on it. I've done, um, and they, we're getting there. We're getting there. So, well, we have about but, uh, ten more minutes, and so I was thinking in that time, five to ten more minutes. I was thinking I would love for you to talk to us about what are some of the lessons you've learned in your career so far. What would you kind of bestow as wisdom on students that are coming out that are going to start as reading specialists? Um, first and foremost, understand that you're not going to have all the answers when you arrive. Um, just because you have um, completed your training and you're finished and you actually have the degree in hand, you have the title, I think it's important not to, I don't know, personally, you feel like you have to have all the answers. And answers don't come out of a vacuum. They come out of collaborative work with teams. So just trying to stay open-minded. Um, and working collaboratively, I think, is the key to real success in any school-based, if, if they go into a school-based setting, because um, you can't really push any agenda forward without strong relationships with people. So 
those are probably my two things is don't think you have all the answers. You probably don't. And you have to work with teams of people with different perspectives. And um, that's how problems get solved. And that's how kids learn, you know, ultimately from teams of people working together. Um, that's That's hard because you have to be open-minded and your ideas won't always bubble up to the top but if you build the relationships and show what you know over time it that will come to the top so i feel like that's how i've approached it i don't know it might not work for everybody but that's how i feel like i've been most successful is that i build relationships with teachers and then we share our knowledge together i learn from them they learn from me i've never been a classroom teacher so you can imagine um how many things i'm missing from my teacher basket like I just have never had to manage that so I have no idea what that life is like day to day I mean I'm here in the school I'm with them every day but that's never fully rested on my shoulders so I always appreciate and value their input and in what it's like to manage a full class and not get to leave when I when you need to go to the bathroom <laughs> because yeah, they're like trapped in yeah. there yeah, so yeah. just valuing that I think it's really important you have to be a team player and stay open-minded and um, just keep the kids at the front of everything you do. Because if you if you keep the focus on their learning, that's gonna guide you the right places. It gives you that so. shared purpose and open-minded understanding and then uh, it takes a village, right? So it takes yes. a for these children. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. have, you know, everyone focusing on the child. Uh, makes a huge difference. So I appreciate your time, Christine. Thank you for yeah. your words of wisdom and your uh, experience. And, and uh, I, I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. Um, and just to not give up. Don't get down. People are really being hard on teachers. I think teachers are being hard on teachers right now. Yeah. Um, and it's it seems like a never, like that you can't, win but there's many wins every day my children my students are learning they are feeling successful about themselves um i'm getting beautiful letters from families like about how much i've helped their children you know you're doing the right thing when you're getting you're seeing those kids i had a student come in from a different district this year and he said this is the first place anybody's even cared about my reading. And it was just oh. really amazing. And he's been in some pretty good districts. He bounced around a little bit. But he said this is the first place that, uh, and he's been by my side almost all year working a lot. And um, it, it's just nice to hear those stories where, you know, parents saying this is a, they love reading now. It's not as hard for them. And they just see themselves as successful. So you have to hold on to those moments. Because, you know, you see the Facebook things about why people should leave reading or leave teaching. Like, it's just so hard. You're never going to make a difference. But we're making a difference every day. And you just have to celebrate that because it's easy to get negative, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Yeah. No problem. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, ladies. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website 
or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.